Hello and welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast by the Governance and Local Development Institute at the University of Gothenburg. This podcast is supported by the Swedish Research Council. In the episode you are about to hear, we will talk about political participation and activism among youth, focusing on local perspectives from Egypt, Tunisia, Libya and Iraq. All of the Arab countries have a problem with their education systems. Youth are very dissatisfied with the kind of education they're getting. It doesn't prepare them for the labor market. It doesn't allow them social mobility. Then we will hear an interview with senior lecturer Hanna Leonardson, whose book on local peace building in Lebanon will be published early this year. There's been a lot of focus on individual actors, but the institutions that are already in a specific country have been largely ignored. And that's why I wanted to look at municipalities, which are a local actor existing within the state framework. And eventually, if we actually look at how countries and nations should work, I mean, it's their own institutions that should build peace, that should build the state that exists. We hope that you will enjoy the episode. Please like, share and subscribe if you do. This fall semester, GLD held its first policy roundtable in Arabic. The topic was youth engagement in the Middle East and North Africa. Luckily for us who do not speak Arabic, my colleague Khader Hussein summarized the most important takeaways from this roundtable. She spoke with Marva Shalabi, assistant professor at the Department of Gender and Women's Studies and Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Dina Shihata, senior researcher and editor-in-chief of Al-Malaf al-Masri, or the Egypt File, at Al-Raham Center for Political and Strategic Studies. Khader, Marwa and Dina will set off by covering some of the most recent research on youth engagement in the MENA region, to then discuss the main barriers young people face to engaging politically, and also how COVID played a part in youth's ability to engage considering things like mental health, education, employment, and the economy. So hello and welcome to Governance Uncovered podcast. I would like to first ask you, Marwa, based on recent survey and fieldwork, what are the main priorities for youth in the region? Thank you, Radir, uh, for this podcast. I Just before I answer your question, I just want to highlight that 60% of men's population is under the age of 30, and there are more than 28% of the population that are aged between 15 and 29. This would actually represent over 108 million people, uh, young people in the region, which is one of the largest number of young people to transition to adulthood in the region's history. So this kind of just a kind of a quick framing why we think this topic is very important and why we uh, did the roundtable and now we're summarizing the findings in this uh, podcast. So and and what's also really great about this topic is how the Arab uprisings really demonstrated the potential of the region's youth. But 10 years later, we see that most of the aspirations and the ambitions of this youth continue to be unfulfilled. So it's a really, really very timely topic. And many of the themes that emerge from our roundtable on youth 
many, many themes that I'll try to summarize here. So for instance, our participants from uh, Dr. Rafia Talai from uh, Carnegie Sada, who talked a lot about a poll that he conducted uh, earlier this year for the Mine region, and where it actually shows that uh, the priorities of the youth across the, it's, it's a, it's a mini poll. It's a very small sample, but it's a very, it's very representative of the aspirations and the ambitions of the youth. I will summarize some of the findings of the survey and also the surveys that were done by our participants in Libya and Iraq. So the first for the Carnegie Sada survey, really the main priorities that youth want to see higher level of civil and political freedom in their countries. They were also keen to see improvements in the economic conditions and in the soaring levels of unemployment. It's really shocking how unemployment in the region is really a major concern where we have like only one third of young people in the MENA region, excluding students, of course, have a regular income and all others are temporarily or permanently without work. Economic improvement and employment was one of the main the main concerns. And also, of course, relatedly improving education and advancing technology were also among these priorities. Uh, respondents, especially women, demanded the respect of women's rights and supporting art and culture. So we had also our participant from Libya, Asma Khalifa, who talked about the conflict in Libya and how it shaped youth attitudes. So it's not, again, it's not surprising that uh, based on her work, it's it's that youth, both men and women, they're hoping to see an end to the ongoing conflict and the ethnic tension. And she discussed with us during the roundtable the aspirations of, of the youth in Libya based on a time series study that she conducted with 75 young people, both men and women in Libya since the onset of the uprisings. But she has also emphasized the remarkably low levels of political interest and plunging levels of confidence in formal institutions in Libya, an issue that it will be really critical to address in the country's post-war reconstruction efforts. There's also particularly alarming given the shrinking civic space that's taking place not only in conflict zones and conflict countries throughout the region, but also throughout the, the MENA were due to very high levels of state repression and surveillance. Our speaker from focusing on Iraq, uh, Dr. Shivan, he also saw similar patterns where the youth was demanding an end to the sectarian politics in the country and hoping to see more tangible improvement to the security and economic challenges facing the country. And also the fair distribution of the country's wealth and addressing the deep-rooted corruption in state institutions. So this is kind of the, these are the really highlights of the event. And one last thing I would want to add that um, the participants in the workshop kind of alluded to, but we didn't get to talk in depth about, which is a really important nationally representative youth survey, the FES youth survey, which was conducted in 12 MENA countries, which also reveals the uncertainty facing young women from the region. In the 2016 wave, a large majority of young people said that they're not interested in politics anymore. And they are also, this trend was particularly evident in Syria, Tunisia, and Jordan. 
The survey also demonstrated that a large proportion of youth still prefers a democracy as a political system. So like there, there is this kind of contradiction that they're not, they don't want to be politically involved, but still they value democracy and they do want a democracy. And the fact that the youth in, in were less likely in 2016 to express interest, to mobilize politically, but they are more interested to mobilize for socioeconomic causes and reasons. So just lack of hope of political change didn't really change their aspirations for better futures, but even from a socioeconomic perspective, which is also another indicator of this disillusionment with the form of politics. Thank you, Marwa, for those insights. I would like to ask Dina about the challenges and barriers facing young people in the region. So beside the lack of political interest, what are the other challenges facing youth in the region? Thank you, Radir, and I'm very pleased to be here today participating in this podcast and also in the previous panel we had last week. So in my talk, I will try to bring together the different contributions that were made by the participants in last week's panel. So I will not only be focusing on Egypt as I did in our panel, but I'll be talking about the region at large. So the question that I was asked was about the barriers facing youth and hindering their engagement. So I divided this up in accordance to two types of countries in the region. We have type of countries that is experiencing ethno-religious and regional divisions, countries like Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Sudan, Yemen. And then we have different, uh, different type of country in the region that is characterized by authoritarian governance, which include countries like Egypt, Algeria, Tunisia, Jordan, Morocco, and the Gulf countries. Okay, so I think each type has a different set of issues that set them apart, but also there are common issues across the Arab world. So first, I will discuss kind of the distinct problems that each type of uh, Arab countries has, and then I will discuss the common problems. So for the first type of countries, the countries that are divided by ethno, religious, and regional differences, whether they are at war or you know at peace, I think that these divisions are the main obstacle to youth engagement and participation. Participation. The type of issues that these countries have in common have to do with the diffusion of power as opposed to the concentration of power in authoritarian countries. So power is diffused. There is no strong central government. Power lies with the leaders of the ethno-religious or regional groups, not within the government. So in these countries, we see uh, a lot of corruption among the leaders of the different regions and sects and ethno-religious groups. And we also uh, see a lot of foreign intervention, the, the division, the breakdown of central, the central government in all of these countries invited foreign intervention and they became the site of proxy wars in the region. Perhaps Lebanon is different because, you know, they, they've had this sectarian political system for a long time, but other countries in the region are now suffering from some of these same problems. So I would say in the first type of countries, those are that are suffering from divisions, uh, whether ethnic or religious or regional, this is the main obstacle that these countries confront. In the second type of countries, those that are characterized by authoritarian governments, we have the opposite problem. Instead of diffusion of power, we have over-concentration of power. The state is highly centralized. 
and uh, power is concentrated within a very small group of people at top of the state. So these are kind of the differences between these two types of countries. Shared problems are many. Uh, I think the GCC countries, because of oil wealth, you know, they need to be discussed separately while they share some of the problems. But also, I think they have you know, unique characteristics that, you know, kind of they're another typology, even within the authoritarian typology. But for non-oil producing countries, I think they share similar problems with each other and also with the countries divided by different kinds of ethnic and regional divisions. All of the Arab countries have a problem with their education systems. Youth are very dissatisfied with the kind of education they're getting. It doesn't prepare them for the labor market. It doesn't allow them social mobility. It leads to unemployment, which is the second shared problem. Unemployment is highest among educated, college-educated youth in the Arab world. This category has the highest level of unemployment in the region, so there is a link between kind of bad education and high unemployment. So unemployment is, I would say, perhaps the top issue for youth in the region across the board and the primary hindrance for them to be effective uh, participants in society. Another common problem is corruption. That is also a very prevalent problem across the region and weak or bad governance. Added to that, different modes of social exclusion. I think youth are increasingly uh, having you know, a set of norms that uh, is not accepted in society at large and increasingly patriarchy opposition to diversity and tolerance is becoming an obstacle more and more towards youth realizing their potential and being effective members in society. So I think increasingly we're seeing this clash between youth culture and the broader culture that has that is not, you know, adapting to the views of uh, youth increasingly. The final problem, I think, has to do with weak economies, weak private sector, obstacles to starting businesses, state control over the economy. So this also is a shared grievance, I think, across Arab countries, whether they are of the first type or the second type. I would like to add just a couple of points to Dina's really great uh, comments here. So I also want to highlight that these disparities, especially in employment and access to private sector jobs, are even worse for women in the Middle East. So so there are also gender disparities here that are being produced out of this whole structure of inequalities, but it's also affecting women even more. I wanted to highlight one uh, statistics from one of the World Bank reports, recent reports, that it mentions that if all those in the working age population look for work, these regimes and the MENA regimes will need to create about 200 million jobs by 2050. And 75% of these jobs need to go to women. But it's almost impossible for the public sector to generate this amount of, of jobs. And the private sector, as Dino just mentioning, really needs to play a huge role in generating these uh, millions of jobs. So that's why there's this also, it's not just a problem of unemployment, there's also some structural issues, how the private sector is, is structured in the MENA region, how it needs to be strengthened and lead the way in creating the jobs to address some of these employment issues. Thank you, Dina and Marwa. My final question is about COVID and its impact on young people in the region. 
We know that globally COVID affected education, mental health and employment. How can we understand this in the MENA context? Thank you, Ghadir. Uh, I think first off, COVID in the Middle East and Africa was not as devastating as it was in other parts of the world. Most of the you know, analysis focuses on the fact that because we have young populations, the mortality rate was much lower in this part of the world than in other regions. So in general, the death toll of COVID was less devastating in this part of the world for various reasons. Of course, COVID had you know, negative consequences on this region as it did everywhere else in the world. I think these consequences were primarily economic and combined with the war in Ukraine, I think the economic impact was multiplied. And I think this is also goes for the rest of the world. But I think the main cause of suffering caused by COVID, aside, of course, from those from who suffered from it from a health point of view was economic. There was an interruption in sectors such as tourism, uh, rising prices and so forth. However, you know, I think there was also a positive side to the picture. The first one that I mentioned earlier, that infection and mortality rates were lower because the median age in this region is much lower. And the lockdowns were also much shorter than what was experienced in China and the US and Europe. I think uh, governments in this region decided early on that uh, the economic cost of keeping people home would be uh, too devastating. So the lockdown in most of the countries in the region did not, not last long and life went back to normal pretty quickly. So I think kind of the psychological impact that was felt in countries such as China and the US and in European countries where you know young people were in isolation for a long period of time. Luckily, we didn't experience this kind of psychological toll in many countries of the region. Or even if we did, it was for a much shorter period of time. Of course, there was a disruption in education for a Philip, but also for a much shorter period of time than other parts of the world. And I think the experience of COVID helped speed up the integration of new technology within the education system and also within the labor market. It helped speed up and deepen the digital transition that is you know, promoted by some governments in the region. So this was also one of the positive consequences of COVID. So in my view, the primary negative consequence for, of COVID in the region was economic, whereas the psychological and other types of impacts, of course, violence against women also increased as a result of COVID and the economic hardship caused by it in this part of the world, like all other parts of the world. So this is uh, you know, one of the negative consequences of COVID, I would say. Thank you, Dina. And Marwa, do you want to add anything? I would like to end the podcast with a positive note. <laughs> so um, one thing that I learned from the FES youth survey that the MENA youth, they're actually very optimistic. So on average, 65% of respondents which are between the age of 15 and 29, as I mentioned, they state that they're rather optimistic about the future, despite the challenges. I am also very cautiously optimistic as well. And I think there's so many important changes are taking place in the region that call for optimism. 
there is a substantial increase in women in politics, something that I focus on and I, I study and I see how it's changing power dynamics in, in the countries uh, with more women in power. Currently, women representation in national parliament is at 18% compared to less than 10% before their uprisings. We're getting there. So also due to the introduction of the mandatory gender quotas in Algeria in 2012, and there is expansion of party lists in Morocco in 2011. Also, women are now allowed to drive in, in, in Saudi Arabia. There are so many constitutional reforms in Tunisia mandating gender parity. There are several reforms on like violence against women, more uh, now it's becoming very hotly and, and women's rights are becoming very hotly debated issues throughout the region, something that we did not experience for a long time. So there is a change. And even if political change is not attainable at this, at this point, youth is leading social change and across the region. And it's like a tide and no one will stop that. So they were able to stop the political change, but social change, you cannot stop it. So, and this is something that's going taking place in the region right now. And I think it's, it gives me optimism. Thank you for adding some optimism to this segment of the podcast. As a young person from the MENA myself, I'm also optimistic. So let's see what will happen in the coming few years. And thank you so much for coming to the podcast. That was very insightful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ghadir. Thank you. Thanks for GLD. How is peace built at the local level? Hanna Leonardson, senior lecturer at the School of Global Studies, University of Gothenburg, asks that question in her new book, Navigating the Local, Politics of Peacebuilding in Lebanese Municipalities. Looking at the three Lebanese municipalities, Saida, Burj Hamoud and Tyre, through service provision, local interactions and vertical relationships, Hanna tries to understand how local peacebuilding works in terms of local capabilities while considering Lebanon's diversity. Ellen Lust met with Hannah to talk about this book of hers. And that is what we will be listening to now. My name is Hannah Leonardson. I have a PhD in Peace and Development Research from University of Gothenburg. I'm currently working as a lecturer in Global Studies and Peace and Development Studies at Gothenburg University. Thanks, Hannah. It's great to have you. I also want to congratulate you on your new book, Navigating the Local Politics of Peacebuilding in Lebanese Municipalities. Thank you. So your book is basically contributing to what's called the local turn in peacebuilding. And I'd like to start by having you describe to us a little bit about what the local turn means and then how your book contributes to understanding it. Yes. So the local turn in peacebuilding, it's uh, set in relation to what has been thought of as uh, a field of peacebuilding, which is usually perceived as top-down. It's uh, UN peacebuilding, EU sometimes, big international organizations promoting democratization, marketization, human rights, and the rule of law. What has been emerging after many years of this is that it doesn't always work as it's supposed to do or as it's thought to do. And then there's been a local turning peace building emerging to critique the failures or when peace building becomes elitist, it becomes centralized. It doesn't really take the needs of those living the peace into account. So that's the local turn in peace building, which emphasizes localizing peace. It emphasizes local agency, actors and practices. And then you're looking specifically at municipalities and in the case of Lebanon, right? So. Can you give us a sense of how you're seeing the role of municipalities and municipal governance and governments in this process? 
Yes. I mean, the local turning piece building has been focused a lot of on agency and emancipation of actors. Hearing the voices of those often unheard to research critical approaches to peace building. But at the same time, there's been a kind of lack of framing this within the institutions that already exist. So there's been a lot of focus on individual actors, but the institutions that are already in a specific country have been largely ignored. And that's why I wanted to look at municipalities, which are a local actor existing within the state framework. And eventually, if we actually look at how countries and nations should work, I mean, it's their own institutions that should build peace, that should build the state that exists. So you're particularly interested in three municipalities in Lebanon, right? So you're looking at Tyre, Burj Hamoud, and Saida, and thinking about how those municipalities are working both with local actors as well as with the sort of central government or other stakeholders outside of the municipalities. Can you just give us a sense first of what those those three municipalities, the the characteristics Mm. and what, what we know about them? Yeah. So the choice of uh, Burj Hamoud, Saida, and, and Tyre is based on, on the diversity of Lebanon, right? So they have multiple religious sects, and some are majorities in some places and minorities in others. So Burj Hamoud, it's a traditionally Armenian municipality. It's a suburb to Beirut, so very close to the capital of power, center of power. And it was one of the first places where the Armenian communities came to Lebanon through the Armenian diaspora, Mm. early 1900s. Of course, today it's also an urban space. It's a mixed space. It has Maronite, Catholic minorities. It has Shia minorities, not so much Sunni, but Sunni Palestinians within its borders, but also in its vicinity. And Saida then is municipality with the Sunni majority traditionally closely connected to the Sunni party future movement. It's the birth town of Rafiq Hariri, the former prime minister of Lebanon. So very close political ties Mm -hmm. there. But it's also an urban space. It's also a mixed space. It has prominent Shia minorities and not so much within its borders, but in its surroundings, it has also Christian villages. And then Tyre is the Shia majority town. But at the same time, it's Shia and Christians living within its borders. It has camps of uh, Palestinian refugees around it, within it. It's traditionally politically connected to Amal, the Shia party. So not so much Hezbollah, as many are thinking about the Shia in the south of Lebanon. But here it's actually the other Shia political party that has a majority in the municipality. And then when you're looking at it, you're looking at not just the kind of the ways in which sectarianism works, right? You're actually looking at the ways in which they are able to provide services, focusing on waste and waste management, particularly, if I understand, and also thinking about the kind of ways in which they engaged with local actors as well as with central actors or upper level stakeholders. Yes. So I'm looking at these three municipalities through service delivery, local interactions and vertical relationships in that they capture different aspects of providing for a local piece, but a local piece that also needs to connect to other levels of government. And looking at these three, I think it's really important because there's a lot of empirical studies on Lebanon that often focus on one space. Mm -hmm. And then it gets, the sectarianism of it gets very prominent. It becomes very important whether this is a Shia place or it's an Armenian place or it's a Sunni place. Whereas by looking at the three of them, I can actually see how actors act in similar ways, or at least according to similar structures. 
So yes, it brings out the sectarianism of Lebanon, but it also brings out those structures that reproduces that sectarianism by looking at three different municipalities. Right. And in some places, you're showing us that whether we're talking about, say, for example, service provision, that how Shia majority or a Sunni majority or Armenian majority areas, it's not about whether they're Armenian or Sunni or Shia, right? It's about how are they able to actually gain resources? How are they able to mobilize and be able to provide services? Exactly. So even if the aspect of service provision is really important in caring for local needs, By connecting that to the vertical relationships, you can really see what gets done on a local level is very much connected to who's in in power at the national, international level. So how they're able to connect resources. And those are, I mean, often called sectarian, but at the same time, they're, they're political. They're based on political alliances, political parties, rather than actually whether you have a certain religion or not. Yeah, and with regards to the thinking about political, you also show us that there's differences in terms of much there's contestation versus attempts at almost providing quotas or bringing the various local mm. groups together, right? Which I found very fascinating because mm. in many ways, we think of that as the local basis for attempting to kind of alleviate conflicts mm. and, mm. and in that sense, mm. avoid future conflagration, basically. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, you're showing us that Saida is different than Tyre and Burjumud. Do I have that correct? Yes, they're an interesting case because there's more political contestation. Burjumud and Tyre are exactly this, what you're describing. So kind of the idea of localizing governance so that we can get all the actors on board, so that we can create consensus locally, we can assign different seats to different groups or communities and therefore have more collaboration. Saida is really interesting because they've had contested elections for the past at least three elections. Now, Lebanon didn't have municipal elections in the spring, but in 2016, it was contested between three lists. In 2010, it was contested between two lists and similar in 2004. And that's really interesting because it's not a system that we usually see in Lebanon. But it's also, especially if you look at kind of local conflicts that happened in between the 2010 and 2016 elections, actually spilled over to one of the actors that was quite conflictual in 2013, creating a political list. So there's a political contestation around power and a kind of, I mean, we say when democracy becomes kind of the norm, and that's when you're a democracy and democratic country. And in some way, that has started to take place. I mean, that's not what I'm researching in right, my book, right. but I think it's really it's fascinating. Insight, yeah. Yeah. In a sense, Saida was also the, the case that has the better connections with central stakeholders and able to get more resources yes. in that way than either Tyre or Bouchamou. Mm. And so I was wondering if you think that there is a relationship or potentially a relationship that should be explored with regards to the extent to which you have or can gain resources, Mm. and then the degree to which there's actual contestation. If everything Mm. is based on being able to make it locally, does that push you to being much more interested in collaborating with Mm. others at the local level than not? I was just wondering if you Mm. have any thoughts with regards to that. No, that's a really interesting question. And I think there are two answers because Burj Hamoud is really the opposite of Saida in that sense. It doesn't have any influential national connections or not any, but very, very few. Whereas Saida, then it's connected to future movement, the Hariri family, 
also with connections to the Gulf states and the possibility of getting resources from there. So yes, there's a possibility for local development through resources to a greater extent, but that also has created a kind of local or a municipal governance that focuses on those kind of large infrastructural projects, the things that needs money. Whereas in Burj Hamoud, it's much more localized. It's much more based on, so how can the municipality be part of uh, health programs for the kids in school? Can we have healthcare workers come and do checkups? Collaborations with dentists, like local actors, to bring out another type of development, which is very different from the one that you can have in Saida. Of course, they envy Saida. They all do. Because they see that they are able to have these resources and build a waste management plant, which is one of my examples, or renovate the old parts of the city, make it more touristic and beautiful and and all these visible developments. But then to the second part of your question, whether that creates more contestation, yes, but also I think part of the contestation is that they ignore certain things. By focusing on infrastructure, by focusing on big projects, they are heavily perceived as being quite partial in the type of governance they have. What do you mean by that exactly, with partiality? I mean that they are not involved in more social issues. Okay. Building a hospital, yes. Running it, it's not not their thing. Okay. Also, the third list that became part of the 2016 elections, it was Sheikh Al-Asir, who was heavily like mobilizing inside that against Hezbollah's involvement in the Syrian civil war. So very heavily anti-Hezbollah. And that was not an issue on the table for the municipal government at all. Like, okay, they are future movement, moderate Sunni Muslims. Let's collaborate with the ones that we can. Right. Um, let's not take stance on these questions. But that became an issue of contestation. So other issues become issues of contestation in in this case. Because they're sort of left off the table, in in a sense, and kind Mm. of left to be a part of the competition. Yeah. And also the other list. So one was Sheikh Al-Asir, but then there was other list opposing the future movement backed list, not only future movement, but predominantly, mostly consisting of local NGOs, like those who wanted to do more social work in a way through the municipality. So in some ways, you're showing us actually quite a great deal of variation in the mm. ways in which municipalities can play a role in peace building, and especially kind of long-term peace building and potentially democratization, mm. though, mm. like you said, that's not the, the focus of your book. Mm. Can you give us a sense of which municipality seems to be more successful in this regard, if you're willing to, to stake a claim <laughs> on that, um, and if it's not too hard to do so? But also, what are the conditions that might facilitate this, if there's any? I think what you're saying also, it it brings up one actually of the key arguments in the book, and that's that we need to talk about pieces. It's not one piece. Mm -hmm. It's not one way of conceptualizing peace, but different ways of doing it. I don't really want to say that this municipality is doing better (laughs) than the others. And that's that's probably because like my whole approach is to understand what's going on. Yeah. To look at the local practices, to see how they play out. And as I'm saying, I mean, for example, Tyre is, when you draw everything together, I assess them as a municipality that, that you kind of pass by. It's important in some senses, but not. It's very much internationally run, the projects that get done. They don't have that much of a say. 
But at the same time, those internationally run projects, they allow small spaces for the municipality to connect to local citizens. They have, for example, an after-school teaching program for, so kids can come and do their homeworks in a building that was renovated by the World Bank. So they're using the space to localize local governance, local development, which would not have been possible if they were not involved in these kind of projects. But of course, they're seen as not really driving the process. They're seen as just kind of puppets of the World Bank, of Italian agencies come and say, okay, we're going to support you and you're going to develop the city in this way. So it's not that it's better or worse, but it's it becomes something. Right. And it becomes something different. Do you have any thoughts of how to understand the roles of municipalities where they're not so big. So Lebanon is mm. actually an, a very unique case in mm. that it has either among the highest municipalities yeah. per population, and many of them don't have much staff, you know, or they have one full-time mm. person mm. or no full-time people. So you've chosen to look at some municipalities that have teeth. I mean, they really mm. are municipalities. They yeah. really have resources and staff, and they do things. But we can also think about the municipalities out there that are not like mm. that. How do you see them in playing these kinds of roles? How should we understand mm. municipalities that are less well-staffed and resourced mm. thinking about peace? So the three I study, I mean, they're urban, they're bigger, and they're among the larger palities in Lebanon. But Lebanon has more than a thousand municipalities. And one reason for not studying those really small ones was exactly this, like, how do I study a process when there's no one who's full-time employed in this? Maybe you have a mayor that lives in Beirut during the week and then comes to the village in, in the weekend. And that makes it extremely difficult to localize peace through municipalities, of course. At the same time, I think by raising the questions of how is service provision working in that place, is it? at all. Mm -hmm. How does the municipality interact with different local actors? And especially in those cases, looking at the vertical relationships. To whom? And in the more rural areas, I mean, the political party in power becomes key here. In some areas where Hezbollah is very strong, then they are really like influenced by what is acceptable and the resources coming from there and other political parties in the same way. So I think it still gives us a framework to understand and look at what could be important for local peace building. But of course, we need to be aware of that if the resources are not there. I mean, many of the aspects that I bring up, I mean, they're based on having a certain kind of capacity. And if there's no capacity, then how can we judge this? I totally agree. I think one of the things that your book raised for me, though, was mm -hmm. to think about does the ability to form a municipality, even if it's not going to have staff, does it itself play a role in peace building, right? Mm -hmm. Is there a way in which having the presence, being able to say, you know, we are a municipality, being able to make claims on other stakeholders mm. for, for resources, does that play a role in itself? It goes beyond what you've studied mm. in your book, mm. right? But it's, it's an interesting question mm. that I think your book raised mm. for me in a different frame than I'm used to thinking mm. of it, right? So, mm. so I really appreciated mm. that. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'm wondering if you have other things that you think either that you are studying in the future that sort of mm. come from this or that you are not interested in studying yourself, <laughs> but you wish somebody else would. So what next in terms of academic mm. and scholarly mm. work mm. that you think that this raises? Mm. So I think what the book raises, I mean, if I'm summarizing what I think are its three key arguments, I would say that it's about localizing peace building and it's about looking at peace building as a function. Mm -hmm. How does it work in practice? 
And then it's also about looking at peace building as political. How does politics play into how it functions mm -hmm. and how it's localized? So I think, I mean, that's definitely a theme that I would want to continue on. But I also think that it's really, really interesting to see how these processes interact in creating what is the local. How is it perceived? How does it how is it governed? How does it gain certain capacity or not? And what works and what doesn't? I'm working from a constructivist point of view. Mm -hmm. So the meanings that these types of interactions create is really, really interesting to me. But then I also think that the idea of looking at peace as pieces yeah, it's very interesting. It's really yeah. interesting and it's something that we could bring. And I hope that sometime like in the future, I will be able to work towards that, to bring that to context where we do think that we have peace. Mm -hmm. But maybe if we look at peace as how it's working for different types of communities in Lebanon, in the Middle East, but also, I mean, in, in Europe, in yeah. Sweden, looking at what, what it means for different people is really, really interesting. Actually, that's another thing that I thought of when I was reading the work was that there's some ways in which it starts to reframe how we think of things like inequalities mm. and service provision issues to begin with, for instance, that goes far beyond what we think of as post-conflict or yeah. mm. fragile states, right? Mm. So it really gets us to some core questions about how should we understand the workings of municipalities or the mm. politics around mm. at the local level. And the relationship between those and inequalities and mm. peace or pieces. Yeah. I think that that's a really important yeah. area to look at. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And if you were to think of the practitioners out there, what would you like them to know? I think, I mean, it's about paying attention to how work is carried out, how processes engage with different actors. It's not just about measuring results or saying this is peaceful and this is not, or we should exclude those actors and include those. It's more about looking at what does it do when you take those decisions. And I'm not a practitioner myself, so it's hard for me to say, okay, I'm going to give you advice. Right. But I, I still think that taking a step back and looking at the work you do from a broader perspective is really important. But then I also think that especially if, if we're talking about practitioners in international organizations or in NGOs, when you come to a place and you're supposed to implement some kind of project or development policy or something, I mean, look at the institutions that are already there. Look at how you can localize this through actors that already exist, that already have a network. Because when you're, you no longer have funding or a new policy or recommendations from, from the top, there needs to be someone who was there from the start to carry on the work. It might change what you do, but it, for sustainability of the work, I think that's really important. So I have a good sense of the, the key stakeholders, if you think of it that way, right? But, yeah. but also, I think one of the things that you've really shown us is almost the multiple paths, right? And the mm. multiple ways that things can work out, which is why the localization is so very important. Mm. Mm. Right? Again, congratulations. It's Thank wonderful you. work, and it's, mm. it's great to see it out in between covers. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah. Ben, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. That was all for this episode. We hope that you enjoyed it. Please like and share if you did. Feel free to drop us a note on any of our socials on what you would like to hear more about in the upcoming episodes. We'd love to hear from you.